Good morning, church. It's good to see everyone here this morning. And uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Charlie. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at King's Cross. And uh, I'd like to welcome you to our service this morning. Uh, if you're a visitor, I know what you're probably thinking. Your neighbor, your coworker, uh, and probably invited you and said, man, you really need to come here to our church. I'm sure you'd really get something out of our, what our lead pastor, Clint, would preach. And you show up and, well, I, that just means you're going to have to come back again, right? And so I'll try to get out of the way this morning and allow the Holy Spirit to do His work. Um, we're going to be... Uh, continuing in our series in the Minor Prophets in the book of Zephaniah. Uh, and in preparing the message, it struck me that, you know, often in our modern society, there is a major disconnect between the God of the Old Testament from the God of the New Testament. You know, our culture is filled with skeptics, and they enjoy this tension. And I'd like to point out that the God in the Old Testament was this angry, wrathful God. And then Jesus comes along in the New Testament and is this turn-the-other-cheek guy, right? In fact, one of the favorite phrases in our society today is, judge not that you be not judged, right? We like, they like to say that. The problem with this assessment is that it's based on a lack of biblical understanding. First of all, we've got to remember that in the four counsels of God, in the doctrine of the Trinity, as revealed in the pages of the Bible, Jesus was present and active in the judgments that took place in the Old Testament. Furthermore, you can look in the book of Revelation and read of the wrath of the Lamb that's yet to be unleashed. So if you do that, then you get this more holistic picture of how God is and how he demonstrates his wrath upon sinners. You know, our God, let me just say this up for our God is not some loose cannon losing his temper with people. God's wrath is not some reckless rage, an uncontrollable anger, a senseless fury, or some unjust vengeance. The wrath of God is a precise, controlled response to our belittling of his holiness. Everyone who perishes under the wrath of God in eternity will not be because God lost his temper with them and mistreated them. You know, and then often the pendulum swings the other way and the love of God is exalted above the wrath of God. And that too is a tragic mistake. It does not reveal the true nature and revelation of God as he's put on display in the pages of Scripture. So we must be balanced and true to what God's Word actually says. So, this little book of Zephaniah contains some of the most intense images of both God's wrath and His love that you'll find anywhere in the prophets. In fact, I, I really had this temptation of reading the first two <laughs> chapters so you could feel the rolling of the wrath and the judgment of God. And so I would suggest that maybe uh, this afternoon or sometime this week you would read those so that you get the idea of this intensity that keeps coming forward in his wrath. But about two and a half chapters of God's justice and wrath being poured out upon Judah and the nations leads us to the last 12 verses speaking of God's love bringing Judah and nations into the marriage covenant with God. I told Dustin uh, this morning 
You know, it's like I want to rush through two and a half chapters so I can get to those last 12 verses, right? But we've got to start with the wrath and judgment of God first. And because of this bold juxtaposition of God's justice and love, this book, this book displays the gospel in brilliant colors. So let's pray and let's get started. Father, we, we come because Christ paid the price for our sin. We know that you hear us and that you love us and that you care of us. And it is a wondrous thought, a wondrous thing that this God who is holy and righteous and perfect and pure is also loving and merciful and gracious and kind. How can it be? And we just ask today that you would speak to us, Lord, through your word and help us to see you in all your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. In Zephaniah 1, 1, which our brother just read, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushai, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. It's, there's some really something interesting and unique here. Most of the prophets, when they give uh, an indication of their lineage on the time frame in which they minister, they name their father, and they may name the king during which they're, they're prophesying and ministering, and that's about it. But Zephaniah here gets four generations. Four generations he traces his lineage that was ministering during the days of Josiah. That would put Zephaniah himself within the royal family, not in the line of the kings, but in the royal family. And as a descendant of godly King Hezekiah, and since he was of royal blood, he no doubt had access to the royal family. In fact, some of the commentators I read behind said that he kind of tag-teamed with uh, King Josiah in singing to bring reformation to the nation. It's really interesting, though, that we learn from this book that Josiah's reformation was short-lived. Basically, King Josiah made great strides in cleansing the temple of idols, bringing reforms to the nation where he could. But idolatry was so deeply entrenched in the people that he was not able to eradicate it. And even with all of Josiah's personal repentance and change, the righteous judgment of a holy God still hung over Judah. In fact, in, in 2 Kings 22, we have, a, we have a description of how that God said to uh, jo Josiah, because of his personal repentance, that he was going to gather him to his fathers so that he would not have to see and experience the judgment that was coming. And so we've got this idea here that even though we have all this, this outward reformation that took place, there was still judgment to come. So Zephaniah here begins by proclaiming the judgment of God and exposing the sin of the people. You can see that here that the prophecy of Zephaniah, that the people have been guilty of worshiping false gods. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swell by Milcom. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. And again, if you turn to 2 Kings 21, you see the historian there um, giving a list and description of all the kinds of perversion, uh, religiously and socially, that it infiltrated the land. 
He describes evil, despicable practices, erecting idols to Baal, worshiping the host of heaven, and there's even child sacrifice that's taking place in the nation of Judah, God's people. And because God's people had turned to other gods and turned away from the true and living God, God's judgment was necessary. In verse 17, it says, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Why is the judgment coming? Why is judgment necessary? Because they have sinned against the Lord. It's earned. You can be sure that God's judgment is always earned. God is not capricious. He gives man here this judgment, exactly what they deserve, exactly what they have earned. You know, this word sin is tossed around so lightly, but it gives the idea of missing the mark or failing to hit the mark. And what's the target? What's man missing? What target is he missing? Well, God's righteousness, God's law, it doesn't change. And man has failed to hit the mark. And because of that, they, as well as we, Warrant, merit, earn, deserve the judgment of God because we have sinned. Because they have sinned, God said, I will bring distress upon them. So we learn here that this judgment is necessary because the Lord is who he is. Over in Zephaniah 3, 5, it says, the Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Every dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. Folks, the Lord is just. And because God is who he is, because he is righteous, because he cannot deviate from himself, because he is the absolute, he must and he will deal with sin. Sin cannot be just set aside. Because he is the just Lord. He is the righteous Lord. And everything he does is going to be in conformity to who he is and what he is. So God can only do what he does because he only is what he is. He's holy. He's righteous. And whatever he does is just because he is just. And he is intolerant concerning sin because he's holy. The very nature of God himself demands the judgment that must come. It is the very nature of God that demands that judgment upon sinners because of sinners and who we are. But not only is this, this judgment of God necessary, it shows here in Zephaniah that it's dreadful. It's dreadful. Look at what Zephaniah says. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lawfully battlements. Can you hear? Can you hear this judgment? This dreadful judgment that's to come. Here the prophet gives us this imagery and this context of the day of the Lord. 
Now, we're not going to go into this uh, detailed description of the day of the Lord and how it appears in uh, the end times and all that. Um, but what we will do is we will talk about this, the day of the Lord as it's mentioned here 20 times. 20 times in the book of Zephaniah, this phrase is used. In fact, Zephaniah 1 is one of the most expressed, detailed, explicit descriptions we have anywhere in the scriptures concerning the day of the Lord. It's a time of divine visitation and divine in intervention. Most scholars define the day of the Lord as that period in which God lays bare his arm and enters into the affairs of his creation, either for judgment or for blessing. Here, most certainly, it is for judgment. But unmistakably, it is the hand of God, that supernatural event whereby God breaks into time, the day of the Lord. There can be no denying that God's judgment here clearly reveals His wrath or divine anger against sin. Sin is just not some light thing. It's just not. It is, the, it is the revulsion of God's character to what is a violation of God's will. J.I. Packer said, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. But when you really, really think about it, God's wrath is actually His love in action against sin. God is love. And God does all things for His glory. And He loves His glory above all things. Therefore, God rules the world in such a way that brings Himself maximum glory. This means that God must act justly and judge sin, which means to respond with wrath. Otherwise, God would not be God. God's love for His glory motivates His wrath against sin. That's an unchangeable thing. It's a reality because of who God is. And regarding this judgment, we... We see here in this discussion of, of the day of the Lord that this judgment was near and is at the same time far. So that just briefly, most of the commentators that I read behind said that the first two and a half chapters outline a day of the Lord that was near. Zephaniah 7, 1, 7. Be silent before the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guest. In verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. The Hebrew word here for near could also be translated at hand. So it carries this idea, this initial uh, judgments of something nearby, close at hand in the same near future about to happen. So it doesn't give us this idea that it could possibly happen any time over the next 4,000 years. My point is, it looks like that everything in chapter 1, 2, and the first seven verses of chapter 3 all occur in the near future. But then in chapter 2, it goes on to say that it wouldn't be just Judah that's being judged. 
in this very soon near day of the Lord. In chapter 2 verse 4, the word for there at the beginning connects the judgments about to fall on the pagan nations around Judah to the same day of the Lord and the same day of the Lord's anger and wrath. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Exelon shall be a desolation, and Ashad's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Jairites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Cana, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. So it's not just this judgment coming on Judah. It's also the nations around. In verses 4 and 5, he speaks of this destruction. Upon the, these are Philistine cities. In verses 8 through 11, he, he says that Moab and Ammon will be wiped out. No longer exists as nations. In verse 12, he speaks of Ethiopians being slain by Babylon's armies. In verse 13, he promises to destroy Assyria and make Nineveh a desolation. So there is this idea here that it's not just Judah that's going to be judged and wrath come upon. It's all the nations surrounding Judah. But glory be to God. God's judgment was and is escapable. In Zephaniah 2.3 it says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just command. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. There's a play here upon the very meaning of Zephaniah's name. Zephaniah means the Lord has hidden. It may be that you can be hidden in the day of this judgment. But how do you escape? You can try to outrun this judgment and you're going to fail. You can try to somehow outmaneuver and bribe your way or buy your way out of it, but it's not going to happen. The only way that you can escape the judgment of this righteous judge is by fleeing to that judge. I thought you'd get a lot more excited than that. Because <laughs> something just popped up in me. I don't know. Human reason says that if judgment is coming, you run the other way. If there is disaster out there, you run the other way. But spiritual judgment is you flee to the source of that judgment. You flee to the source of that danger. God is the judge. You cannot outrun him. You have to run to him. In verse 3 it says, seek the Lord. There has to be repentance. There has to be faith. There has to be repentance. You can see how these two things work. Seek the Lord. That's the positive aspect of it. Then it says, seek the righteousness. Away from your wrath. Away from your sin. Seek humility. The great obstacle to seeking the Lord is pride. Yeah. Yeah. Psalm 10.4 says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. Therefore, humility is essential to seeking the Lord. 1 Chronicles 28.9 said, If you seek him, he will be found by you. The great promise to those who seek the Lord is that he will be found. 
And when he is found, there's great reward. Hebrews 11.6, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So God himself is our greatest reward. And when we have him, we have everything. And so the passages in Zephaniah here finishes within what happens to those for those who seek him in faith. In Zephaniah 3, verse 8 through 9, the scripture says, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. But then it says... For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. That all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. And serve him with one accord. And so in verse 8 here he talks about something that they will have to wait for. So the day of the Lord here refers to that ultimate time. When Yahweh will punish and restore the whole world through Christ first and second comings. This reality is inaugurated when Christ came the first time and it'll be consummated at his second coming. So verse 9 says that it will result in all nations have these nations having purified lips and unified service. He changes the speech to a pure speech so that they can call on him and so that they can serve him. Man, what a radical move of grace. It transforms self-serving people into worshiping people. Does that not sound like you and me? Right? Once we're dead in trespasses and sins. Right? But God, living for the world, the flesh and the devil, but now God comes in and changes it and we serve him. Then there is this exhortation for those who God has changed to sing loud, to shout, to rejoice and exult with all their heart. How in the world can a book put such intense side-by-side wrath, intense wrath side-by-side with such intense Love and delight. How is that possible? How is it possible? Well, verse 14 and 15 tells us why they can rejoice and why we can rejoice. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. We and they have reason for this loud and joyful singing. The Lord has taken away the judgments against us. How can that be? We know we deserve these judgments. But verse 15 says, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Praise God, that's the gospel. 
And in the very next phrase, that gospel goes on to give us victory against the world, the flesh, and the devil, our enemies. It says, he has cleared away your enemies. Mm. And that is only possible because the king of Israel, the Lord, is in our midst. The king is said to be in their midst. Our king is said to be in our midst. The Lord Jesus Christ is the king of Israel, the king of his church, and he's in the midst of us. Did you hear that, child of God? The Lord is with you. That ought to fill us with unspeakable joy, peace, and security. I love that. The Lord, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one. He who is in the midst of us is the Lord Jesus, the being of beings, the eternal, immutable, all-sufficient God. He is the Lord our God. He is ours by his own covenant grace. He is ours by his miraculous incarnation. He is ours by his great gift of faith. And he who is the Lord our God is mighty. He is the almighty God. He is the omnipotent creator. He is the all-powerful mediator and savior. All power in heaven and earth has been given to that son of man who is our God. The Lord our God is a mighty one who will save. He is not only able but also willing to save. He readily undertook to save us in the covenant of grace. He came in the fullness of time to seek and to save that which was lost. He has wrought out our salvation for us by his obedience unto death. He sees to it that that salvation is applied to every sinner who will repent and believe. And he will come again to put us in full possession of all that salvation he has accomplished for us. He saves us freely. He saves us fully and everlastingly. He saves from sin. He saves from Satan, the law, hell, and wrath. And he will save us from every temporal and every spiritual enemy in time and eternity. He will save. And not only are the people of God saved from judgment, we are saved for joy. His joy. God's joy, a, God, a joy that we can experience now and one that will last for eternity. Stay with me. The good news gets even better. The scripture says here, the Lord our God will rejoice over us with gladness. How can that be? This God of wrath, this God of judgment, this God of holiness, this God that has to punish and judge sin will rejoice over us with gladness. Does God rejoice over us? Indeed, he does. He rejoices over his own with exceeding great, inexpressible joy. This is one of my favorite scriptures in all the Bible. Um, Isaiah 63. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, or Hephzibah. 
and your land married, which is Beulah. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And you're as the bridegroom, listen to this, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Somebody needs to say amen. amen. Wow. How can that be? And then it says something really unusual. It says, the Lord our God will quiet us by his love. Man, I read commentator after commentator and just all kind and just prayed and said, Lord, what in the world are you saying here? And there's a lot of different views and exactly what this phrase means. Some translations translated that he will rest in his love. Another translation, well, he will be silent because of his love. But I, I think whatever the translation is, whatever is clear here is that the Lord Jesus Christ finds great delight and satisfaction in loving us and expressing that love to us. It is pleasing to him to love us. Oh, what infinite condescending grace. God not only loves us, but he loves to love us. Amen. Christ's love for us is without cause, without beginning, without change, without end. And then something exceedingly wonderful. It says, the Lord our God will exalt over us with loud singing. He rejoices over us with joy and joys with singing. Why do we love music so? Why do we love singing so? Because God does and God created us in his image. So God does not just like to hear us sing. God likes to sing himself. And so it's saying here that he will exalt over us with loud singing. Can you imagine that? Can anybody get a hold of hearing God's voice singing over us? I don't even know what that looks like. I can't even fathom that. So it tells us that God himself is delighted that we are his people, his chosen, his redeemed, his called ones. We are his Hephzibah in whom he delights. We are his Beulah to whom he is married and he wants no one else. Stop and consider this just for a moment. The Lord God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, the Holy One of Israel, rejoices over his people. He exalts over the faithful with loud singing, loud singing, rejoicing. Can you imagine what God's voice would be, how it would fill this room? Unbelievable. This is our God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this God, this living God, rejoices over his faithful remnant with gladness and loud singing. The book here ends with God conveying a message of hope, assurance, and his faithfulness. in bringing about a time of redemption and exaltation for his people. At the final culmination of the day of the Lord. How can it be that this God of wrath 
and judgment and holiness and purity and perfection can be a God who loves and has mercy and grace, long-suffering toward those who have sinned against Him. Man could have never created a God like that. And we know that man didn't because every other religion in the world has God as the stern judge that you have to do all these things to appease. But the true and living God is a God who is both the just and the justifier. I want to leave you with a few observations this morning. Observation number one, judgment is certain. Hear the word of the Lord from Zephaniah. Judgment is certain. God's character demands it, and His holy and righteous nature assures it. Make no mistake, sin will be and has to be judged. The second observation is justification is provided. Judgment is certain, but justification is provided. Here also his word proclaim that justification is provided. God's character provides it. His mercy and grace assures it. And then last but not least, joy is promised. Because justification is provided, joy is promised. God's presence itself brings fullness of joy. So if you're in here today and the certainty of God's judgment is weighing heavy on you right now, run as quick as you can to the judge. And for those of us that are in Christ, for those of us who are redeemed, for those, are, those of us that He's ransomed, rejoice in the justifier. Rejoice in the justifier. Because truly, our God is both the just and the justifier. Let's pray.